This is your public radio station for more than 37 years, KUAF 91.3 FM, and this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Ahead this hour, with early voting underway in Arkansas's preferential primary election, we learn what it takes to be a poll worker. That's in about 15 minutes. And later this hour, I pay a visit to Sleet City, a new specialty art supply store in Fayetteville, and we talk with author Joyce Faulkner, whose latest book is inspired by Fort Smith. First, in the latest episode of Undisciplined, host Karee Banton talks with Michael Pierce, an associate professor of history at the University of Arkansas. We jump into their conversation about the history of the journey of Nelson Hackett, an enslaved man who escaped his owner from Fayetteville and headed north, as in the Great North, Canada. We hear first from Michael Pierce. He leaves Arkansas in sometime July 16th, 17th, 18th of 1841. We don't really know for sure. In fact, some of the court documents say the 16th, some say the 17th. He was some sick of being sold. Well, well and, <laughs> in fact, and there are two narratives of his escape. And one narrative is the narrative told by Alfred Wallace, the man who claims to own him, the man who had the piece of paper that said he owns. And what Alfred Wallace said is this. Um, Alfred Wallace said, you know, I was was away on business for a while, and Nelson Hackett just ran away. He hinted at, but never really formally claimed that Nelson Hackett raped a white girl. But you know, when push came to shove, they never made a formal accusation of that. Mm-hmm. But they, they spread rumors but of that. But that's usually the go-to narrative, yeah, right? Exactly. As we've seen in lynching and, 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 and so on. And so, but on his way out of town, Nelson Hackett took a coat made out of beaver, a beaver hat, a watch from a neighbor, gold watch and chain, also a saddle and Alfred Wallace's finest racehorse. So what does story two say? And and story two, and and this is told by uh, an abolitionist, a white abolitionist named Charles Stewart. And Charles Stewart interviewed Nelson Hackett in Detroit. So he's ventriloquizing. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes. And, of course, Charles Stewart has his own agenda. Mm -hmm. And he tells it this way, that Alfred Wallace and Nelson Hackett were attending a horse race Hmm. some distance from Fayetteville and whatever some distance means. And they were at this horse race. And a horse race was, it was quite a scene. It was more than a horse race. You would have prize fights. Rumbunctious. And and you would have lots of drinking. And it was just a a very chaotic event. And after the the race, the horse race, I, I think one of Alfred Wallace's horses raced. Alfred Wallace says, I have business someplace else, and he says to um, Nelson Hackett, why don't you take this stuff and go back to Fayetteville? <laughs> okay, sir. And, and so, um, as Charles Stewart says, and, you know, Nelson Hackett found himself some miles away from home with all of this stuff, and he just went, um, he just left. He, I would have said I was lost. And, and, and <laughs> I got he just, lost in Canada. And, and so, and, and Nelson Hackett did that. We know he left Fayetteville, or at least Arkansas, sometime in the middle of July of 1841. And we ha- there is an account of his flight. The important thing is that he knew where to cross the Mississippi River. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? 
in how historians like yourself might, or those of us who work in the 19th century, might read into the genius of the enslaved by the choices that they made, right? I mean, this case, what he chose to take, the direction he chose to go, where he chooses to cross. Absolutely. Right? And he chooses to cross the Mississippi River in Marion City, Missouri. And Marion City doesn't exist anymore. I think it, it fell into the, the Mississippi the river. <laughs> river at one point. But Marion City was founded by white abolitionists. Hmm. And most of the people who lived in around there had abolitionist tendencies, as one of the local historians writes. And it was a, a famous place. So, so Marion City was this famous place for fugitives to cross. They crossed Marion City and went to Quincy, Illinois, which was a, sort of another hotbed of the Underground Railroad. And are you getting at how Nelson Hackett would have known this? Well, you know, we, we have no clue. Right, but, but we can suggest, right? We, like we Julia s- Scott says, a common wind. A common wind. A common wind um, blowing gossip among the enslaved in the grapevine. Well, you know, uh, possum up the gum tree. <laughs> possum up the gum tree, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that comes from Sojourner's Battle Hymn. Yes. And it comes from the marching song of the first Arkansas colored infantry. Right. Um, and, and we're talking about there's a secret network among mm-hmm. enslaved people that, that white people throughout the South don't know about, but there are communication networks amongst enslaved people. It's important to, to go back to Fayetteville for a minute. Fayetteville had about 450 people in it, according to the 1840 census. About 120 of them were enslaved. And th- that means that Fayetteville had a, an enslaved population of about 28%, which put it well above the rest of the state at the time which was about 20% enslaved. And so we we have this idea that Northwest Arkansas is somehow different than the Delta, but in in Fayetteville itself. But Nelson Hackett was also the only adult male. Um, Most of the population was children and women of childbearing age. And so there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, most... Most enslaved men in this area were not urban slaves like Nelson Hackett. And Nelson Hackett worked for Alfred Wallace, who owned a grocery store. He was more of a, a personal servant, a, a valet. And so, so that, that means that he also he was taken to horse races. Mm-hmm. He had knowledge of the geography. Of the geography. Um, he would talk to people in a wider network. And in, and in this way, he, he gained these types of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure he shared those, that knowledge with the enslaved community in Fayetteville. But the other thing to remember is Fayetteville doesn't become settled until, well, it doesn't be really 1828, mm-hmm. 1827. And, and what that means is that if you were an adult enslaved person in Fayetteville, you were born someplace else. You were born someplace else. And so you also come to Fayetteville with knowledge of other places. Of, 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 of other places. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so there's lots of weird 
things going on and, and, and how these, this knowledge and this intelligence is gathered. Because people think that enslaved people, because literacy was banned, right, that they don't have knowledge. Right. But they create their own knowledge, their form of literacy. It's like white people who go to African-American neighborhoods and like, hi, my name is Josh. And you don't know the lingo of that space. You know, that's a part of the literacy of that community that because of white supremacy, you might think the white lingo is the, is the, only. the only way of communicating. But no, that also exists as well. <laughs> and you're looking crazy. So they have their own knowledge. So, so they have their own sets of knowledge and they have their own networks of communication. That, and that, it that, reveals that, a kind of genius about absolutely. them as people. What we, we think is that he basically um, headed north, he followed the roads up through what is now, well, what was then Springfield, Missouri, and then due north and crosses Missouri River around Boonville. And then heads east by northeast up to Marion City. And as I said before, Marion City was this sort of Marion City and across the river at Quincy, Illinois, it was sort of a hotbed of, of the Underground Railroad. It was a place that lots of fugitives crossed the river. And, and, and there were sympathizers on both sides. In fact, two weeks before Nelson Hackett crosses, three white men are arrested and put in jail for helping fugitives cross the the Mississippi River. And these men, George Thompson, Allenson Worth, and I forget his last name is Burr. I forget his name. They become martyrs in this larger abolitionist story. And they're actually sitting in a jail outside of Marion City in Marion County, and, and they're writing in their diaries, we heard four more slave, enslaved people cross the Mississippi River today. Mm. And, you know, one of them might have been Nelson Hackett. We right. don't know. Yeah. But, but at that... They're hearing these rumors. The, the, yeah. Historians and, love rumors. I know. Oh, my gosh. And, 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 so, and so, you know, this is a place that mm-hmm. enslaved people in Missouri and Arkansas knew about, and they knew they would have allies. They would have people, abolitionists, both black and white, that would help them cross the Mississippi River mm-hmm. and send them on their way, whether from Quincy to Galesburg or to Princeton or, or any of the other towns along the Underground Railroad. Railroad. Yeah, and one more thing I wanted to say about rumors and gossip, right? Like people like, you know, as a historian, you love these kinds of things because if you're studying people who don't have access to what you call formal channels of communications, this is how they create their own networks of communication and sharing that knowledge through gossip, the grapevine, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But, but the, the, the other part of this that I think is worth mentioning is, is that when, when Nelson Hackett left, when he escaped, he, when, when, when he fled, it, it took a few days, but Alfred Wallace sent people to go look for him. That was U of A history professor Michael Pierce speaking with Karee Benton, the host of the podcast Undisciplined. You can hear the full conversation wherever you get your podcast. Undiscipline is a collaboration between KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and produced by our very own Matthew Moore.
This is Ozarks at Large. Two groups are collecting signatures in Arkansas for proposed constitutional amendments to legalize recreational marijuana. It comes six years after voters approved medical cannabis in the state. Eddie Armstrong, chairman of the group Responsible Growth Arkansas, says state lawmakers have mixed feelings about full legalization. Speaking to members of the Arkansas General Assembly, there are some that don't want it. There are others that understand that if we don't do something, our border states will. And then we'll have to worry about Oklahoma or Tennessee or Louisiana now trafficking or bringing in illegal products that we can't track. We don't know how safe they are. I think they understand the the responsible side of this. He said legalizing marijuana would bring additional economic growth to Arkansas. Another group hoping to put a proposal before voters is Arkansas Truegrass. Spokesperson Brianna Bowling says that there are some people who, for different reasons, don't want to get a medical marijuana card. Some people need it and can't afford the, the medical monopoly, and they need to be able to grow their own. It would also be uh, more tax revenue because all the tax revenue from it would go to the general fund. So the General Assembly would choose where it needs spent in the state. It wouldn't just go all to just retirement for the police or just a, a cancer facility at UAMS. It would go to the general fund. The groups have about two more months to collect enough valid signatures from registered voters to get their proposals on the ballot. It's going to be a long year for motorists as gas prices set a fresh record at the pump today rising above the previous all-time high of $4.35 per gallon set on March 10th, according to GasBuddy. In addition, the soaring price of diesel also set a new all-time record of $5.53 per gallon today. Just in the last seven days, the national average rose over 15 cents per gallon, bringing it to today's record price. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Packrat Outdoor Center, a small business family-owned in Fayetteville since 1973. Packrat offers a variety of outdoor skills clinics, including kayak basic, bushcraft skills, climbing clinics, and more. A full schedule is available online at packratoc.com. Early voting in Arkansas's preferential primary election got underway this week. There are many early voting locations throughout the region. And when you make the decision to go to the polls, you'll likely be greeted by some friendly volunteers. As a part of this week's edition of Natural Election, a podcast from Ozarks at Large and KUAF, Daniel Kruth gets the scoop on who these poll workers are and what it takes to train and coordinate them for the upcoming elections. Back in November of 2020, I traveled around Northwest Arkansas to speak with voters, candidates, and some important volunteers all taking part in that year's election. It was definitely an unusual time for voters. With the pandemic still raging, a lot of people were uncertain about how they could vote, what the rules were for showing up to the polls, and if there would even be enough poll workers to handle the turnout. But from churches to courthouses and community centers, I found people new and experienced who said they weren't going to miss out on doing their civic duty. Uh, my name is Anthony DiNicola. I just moved here from Chicago and I'm so grateful for this new community and I wanted to make sure that, you know, folks who maybe felt uncomfortable being a poll worker this year didn't impede on um, everybody's ability to, to get out to the polls and, and get this done. And what's been incredible is the number of people who have voted early to make sure that today is a very manageable day, which is is incredible. It's been nice and steady. We started out the day really strong with a ton of people voting, and now we have a nice steady pace that we can keep up with. Come on over. 
there you are. That's going to be your ballot and your stylus. And go ahead and vote. There's definitely some folks who have come in nervous and have walked away um, and, and directly told me, you know, I'm really grateful that y'all are taking so many precautions to make sure that people are safe and that, you know, all, not just uh, while you're here, but making sure that you are masked and that you're taking care of it. And if you aren't masked, that don't worry, we still have social distance guidelines and ways to keep other people safe as well. That was important to me. I, I wanted to make sure that as a poll worker, I was going to be safe as well. And it's clear that Jennifer Price uh, has really taken this, this very seriously. And as per usual, from what I've heard, she's really good at running elections. And, and this one is, is no different. So, yeah. Joyce Floyd, it's it's going quite well. We've had uh, a few slow spots, but I think everybody early voted, which was good. So, uh, but we are here to help. I have not heard any complaints, and we are socially distancing. We have cleaners between each voter so that the machines are clean when they get there. Uh, we have the stylus that is individual and the vote that is individual or the ballot so that uh, the workers never touch those, just the voter. Those were poll workers Anthony DiNicola in Springdale and Joyce Floyd in Bentonville. One person who continues to help coordinate volunteers for elections in Washington County is Jennifer Price. For the past 13 years, she's trained and organized poll workers for elections in the county as the elections director for the County Election Commission. In some ways, the elections have gotten more complicated because we've gotten new voting equipment. We've updated things every year to make it easier on our voters when they come in. We've, you know, made it easier for the voters, but it has made it a little bit more preparation work on our end, making sure that, um, you know, everything works correctly and all of the polling locations and our supervisors and poll workers have everything that they need. Price says 2020 was actually a banner year for recruiting poll workers. We had more than enough poll workers than what we needed uh, for the 2020 general election. This year, surprisingly, though, we're having a harder time recruiting just because a lot of those people that signed up to work in 2020 no longer can work. They have full-time jobs. And so, uh, you know, we're definitely having to look for poll workers. And this year, she says they've trained more than 350 people to work the polls in Washington County. She says getting that group equipped takes a lot of effort. Most voters don't realize all of the work that goes into putting on an election, all the type of behind-the-scenes things that go on, everything that our poll workers set through and talk over, because we have to make sure that when the voters come in, they're showing that approved photo ID. What happens, you know, if they don't show approved photo ID, what happens if they have an address change, if we can't find them in the poll book? So we go through and cover all of the different laws and, and the different things that they need in order to make sure that we're properly, you know, checking in the voters correctly. We emphasize very strongly to our poll workers that no voter gets turned away from the polling location. You know, a voter either leaves voting a regular ballot or 
offered a opportunity to vote a provisional ballot. And then, of course, there's the equipment, how to set the equipment up, how to turn the equipment on, um, make sure that it's working properly so that on election day, you know, our polls are open at 730 and ready for voters to be checked in and able to cast their ballot. Trainings are conducted before the election in a classroom-style setting with refresher courses for returning workers. And in those classrooms, Price says she sees workers from all across the political spectrum, but all united in making voting more accessible for everyone. And I really think it has a lot to do with that sense of community, the civic duty, and wanting to, you know, make sure that you're part of something that uh, ensures, you know, that voting continues, you know, all over Washington County so that we're not having to close polling locations, that we can keep sites open in our smaller rural communities, as well as making sure that in our larger cities that the lines aren't exceedingly long and voters, you know, become discouraged and don't participate. This year, Washington County has 223 precincts. Those are election districts that divide people based on their address. And that number is up from 150 in 2020 after the latest census led the state to redraw district maps. Price says if you can't be a poll worker but want to help ensure a smooth voting process, the best thing you can do is be prepared. One of the best things that they can do before Election Day is to go to a website called VoterView.org. That website, especially because of redistricting, in the sense that JP districts have changed, state House districts have changed, state Senate districts have changed, all of that has changed from even 2020. So we want voters to come prepared when they come to vote. Going to VoterView.org shows you what polling locations are open. It shows you your sample ballot, you know, where what your address is. If you need an address change, you can call the clerk's office before you head to the polls. But if you do want to be a poll worker... I will never say <laughs> that we have enough poll workers, just because you just don't know. You know, we get phone calls you know, the day before the election, the day of the election, I can't work. So we're always actively recruiting poll workers just to make sure that we have that backup if we need it. Poll workers are paid for their service and the amount varies from county to county. And you can find more information on how to become a poll worker in your district when you visit the State Board of Election Commissioners website. That's arkansas.gov forward slash S-B-E-C. And finally, Price wants voters to remember that poll workers are there as a human resource for everyone casting their ballot. So don't be afraid or discouraged if you're confused on Election Day. We're kind of like the gatekeeper in the sense that we're, you know, the ones who are providing the voters the opportunity to be able to cast their ballot, making sure that Um, The equipment works properly, that when you vote for candidate A, the vote actually records as a vote for candidate A, Um, that if you need assistance, you know, we're there to help. And so um, by making sure that we have enough poll workers, have enough polling locations, keeping voting accessible encourages people to vote. For Ozarks at Large. I'm Daniel Carruth. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth produced that story inside the Karen Taha News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio.
You can find the latest edition of Natural Election wherever you get your podcasts. The newest episode was released yesterday. And as a reminder, you can find early voting locations and more at KUAF.com vote. Coming up this month during the KUAF Lunch Hour, Arkansas's own Adam Fawcett. Hailing from Little Rock, Adam has drawn comparisons from Tim Buckley to Cat Power to Otis Redding. In his own words, he describes his style as part folk, part blues, part elemental rock stomp, part unidentifiable cosmic holler. And he'll bring all of that to the KUAF lobby May 19th for a special evening edition beginning at 5 p.m. Food will be provided by the Farmer's Table. Space is limited, and reservations for this show are required at Eventbrite. Adam Fawcett with the music, the Farmer's Table with the food, the KUAF Lunch Hour, May 19th. I need little but nothing you got Living on the moon again This is Ozarks at Large. For the past year, we've been given a tour of the first 150 years of University of Arkansas history, courtesy of Charlie Allison, executive editor of University Relations. This week, he brings us his final regularly scheduled installment, which is a little bit of a twist on his usual look at the history of the university. In these episodes for KUAF, we've talked about anecdotes from the university's history, some funny, some serious. But for this episode, I thought we might talk a little bit about an odd topic. That is, the strong likelihood that the University of Arkansas would not exist, certainly not in its present form, if the Civil War had not occurred. I'm indulging myself to a degree here in what's known as alternative history, the kooky hypothetical look at what might have happened if something had gone slightly different in history. Now, I don't want to go too far with this, but sometimes in seeing what didn't happen, it helps us better understand what did. How does a war fought in the 1860s affect a university established in the 1870s? Now, that might not be immediately apparent, but here are some thoughts along that line. First, the seeds of the university's creation were planted 160 years ago in 1862, when Justin Smith Morrill, a congressman from New York, introduced legislation to establish a system whereby each state would be offered tens of thousands of acres of federal land that could be sold by the state to create an endowment to support a public university. Morrill had previously submitted similar legislation in 1857 that had faced Southern opposition, but which barely passed, only to be vetoed by President James Buchanan. By 1862, though, the South had seceded and started a war. Southern representatives were no longer in the halls of Congress to vote against Morrill's legislation. If the South had not seceded, there is a chance those Southern congressmen might have scuttled the deal. They came close in 1857, but the 1862 measure was changed to pick up votes in the populous states by offering land based on the state's population, rather than giving the same amount of federal land to each state. Southerners, who were in the habit of counting enslaved people as only three-fifths of a person, might very well have fought such a distribution even harder. Surely at some point, though, even without a civil war, America would probably have come up with a plan to foster public universities. In a relatively poor state like Arkansas, though, if there were no incentives to start a public university, it's hard to know how long the state legislature might have resisted the idea. Creating the Arkansas Industrial University, as the U of A was originally known, wasn't easy even with a state legislature that wanted a public university. But sooner or later, you have to think that even Arkansas would have created a public university, if for no other reason than to play Texas in football. (laughs) But the next question in my little alternative universe scenario seems less theoretical to me. Would the university have been located in Fayetteville had the Civil War not happened? I'm fairly certain the answer is no. 
It's not that residents of Fayetteville and Washington County were anti-education. Far from it. Washington County had more schools than any other county in the state prior to the war. Its citizenry across the county, from small hamlets to the bustling county seat, saw education as a moral and social imperative. Fayetteville itself had subscription schools for younger students, but also three institutions of relatively higher learning. The oldest of the three was the Fayetteville Female Seminary, which had been established in 1839 and taught young women from across the region, the Indian Territory, and as far away as Texas, Louisiana, and Missouri. The next was Arkansas College, a private institution for young men. It was the first college chartered by the state to award degrees. Like the female seminary, it drew students from across the region and the Indian Territory. Last, the Baptist Church in Fayetteville started the Fayetteville Female Institute in 1860 to compete with the female seminary. All three of these institutions were doing quite well before the Civil War. All three were destroyed during the Civil War. The first two, ironically, were intentionally set afire by the Confederate Army. The female institute was burned first when the Confederates abandoned Fayetteville in early 1862. Every building of military value was to be burned, which left the Fayetteville Square a smoldering ruin by the time Union troops briefly occupied the town. Those same Union troops withdrew quickly, though, and the Confederate troops came back. They burned down the main building of Arkansas College on their way to the Battle of Pea Ridge. The third, the female seminary, caught fire accidentally, but with very few men left in town, putting out that fire proved unsuccessful. If the Civil War hadn't happened, if these institutions hadn't been destroyed, would Fayetteville's citizens have voted to spend a lot of money on securing a fourth institution of higher learning, the university? I have to think not. Batesville might well have wound up with the University of Arkansas or any number of other cities across the state. But then again, it is Fayetteville. They might have bid just as a point of honor. At one time during the early part of the 20th century, there was a women's college platted atop Mount Sequoia. It never came to pass, but... These are people who like their schools. And so even with as much destruction and violence and internal strife as were wrought by the war, there were also salutary effects that came as a result of it, and one of them was the creation of the state's first public university, the University of Arkansas. The university's creation, though, pales in comparison to the primary impetus for the war and the enduring results of the Northern victory. The unlikely experiment that is the United States of America was preserved, and more importantly, the enslavement of people was brought to an end. The people of America who had been enslaved were emancipated. Reality, in this instance, has proved a better and more just story than the imagined alternatives. Charlie Allison is executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas. For the past year, he's taken us on a tour of the first 150 years of history at the U of A in celebration of the university's sesquicentennial. You can find out more about that anniversary at 150.uark.edu. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College in Conway, home of Life Launch, a new one-week residential summer program for rising high school juniors and seniors to explore career planning and experience college life. Now accepting applications for its inaugural session, which begins June 2022. More information is available at hendricks.edu slash life launch. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphererefestival.org. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Timothy Dennis. When you think of the historic district in Fort Smith, you probably think about Garrison Avenue. 
Fort Smith native Joyce Faulkner is an author and historian whose book Garrison Avenue takes a fictionalized look at historical events from 1912 right on that legendary street. The book was published in 2018, but Faulkner has partnered with local artists and sound engineers to produce an audiobook, which will be launched tomorrow night at Bookish in Fort Smith. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore recently spoke with Faulkner and asked what her inspiration was to do an audiobook version of her story. I had uh, had another book um, that had been created as an audiobook, and uh, it was done for me. I didn't have much say about it. You know, it, it was done for me. And I really was surprised to find that we had right here on Garrison Avenue, Saul Studios, um, and it is a recording studio. Uh, and beautiful, beautiful. If you haven't seen it, it's it's just an amazing uh, resource. And as I say, you could look right out the window and see where this event happened. So having the resources there, I was really eager to try and do this myself. And my sister, who is my co-author, her name is uh, Dr. Mickey Vocal, and she is a professor at UFIS. So we discussed, and she uh, has been an actress since she was a little girl. And uh, she was my narrator. In my mind, her voice was my narrator. And so I had the opportunity right here in town on Garrison Avenue with the person I had in mind when I created a character um, was right here. And uh, because of the Fort Smith Little Theater, I also had multiple choices uh, for, you know, the person that was going to be reading the headlines. I always put headlines from the era to frame it. So I said, well, you know, I don't want to do it with somebody else's book. I want to do it. I want to take the risk with mine. And since this is all Fort Smith, let's give it a try. So fortunately, the people at the uh, Soul Studios, uh, Grant Thomas and Anton Rasmussen, they were very excited to do this, too. They had done some recording, but they had never gone from the whole piece. So we started in uh, last year, and we got all of the, pretty much all of it recorded. People here, they were excited about the fact that the studio was available here, but they're very excited about Garrison Avenue because the story is here. The background is here. The people are here. The people who are involved, their ancestors, it happened to. Uh, the buildings are still here. Right. So, you know, we are at this point finally ready to launch. And um, because we are launching it here, with and we've already the book has already been out. We're not introducing the book or the story into Fort Smith. We've are you know we've already launched the, the the print book. The performances are what is amazing in in the audio book, and the resources that are available to do something like this are amazing. And I think for the perspective of the people who have who the story concerns their ancestors, it's easier. One of the things that really fascinates me when I hear you talk about this audiobook is I think most people, when they think of an audiobook, they think of somebody, you know, who is just very blandly, monotonely reading Moby Dick. <laughs> and that's not this, right? You have actors, you have folks who are really bringing this story to life in a very unique way. 
Hello, Miss Caroline. A tall, middle-aged man approached with a tiny woman and a little girl. Miss Mamie? Reverend Matthews? Mrs. Matthews? Caroline said. Did you bring Frankie down to see the parade? The little girl hid behind her mother's skirt. Say hello to Miss Caroline and Miss Mamie, Frankie. The bespectacled woman pulled her skirt out of the child's grasp. I smiled. Don't you look pretty with all those curls. Mama did my bow. Frankie bent over so he could see the green bow pinned in her strawberry blonde hair. What surprised you about the process of turning your written words into an audio story? Well, first of all, it was a a dream uh, because just to work with my sister since I had been gone for 50 years, she was two years old when I left. So I had no idea of the range of her talent. You know, I hadn't seen her perform until I came back. Uh, You know, she uh, studied at Northwestern and was uh, in acting there, had acted in the Portsmouth Little Theater when she was little. So all of that I had missed. Uh, and so I started going to the, the plays and seeing, oh, my God, we've got some really good actors here. And so I kind of tossed it out. Would you guys be interested, mm. <laughs> you know? And surprisingly, I have about 11 people who signed up that, yes, they're interested. And in fact, the young man who performed Fight, Flight, or Freeze, the first one, He was just so eager because the story lit him up and his performance was amazing to the point where at the very last, the very last sentence, the sound engineer who is Anton Rasmussen and I were in tears uh, just from his performance. Even though I read that book, I had edited that book. I'd spent time with that book. The, the acting elevated it. And so that's that's exactly what's happening with Garrison Avenue. For example, like I say, Eric Wells is required uh, to read all the various headlines, and he performs them. So, for example, there's one that's uh, all about the gypsies and the performances of gypsies, and he went right into character (laughs) Mm. so that you are chuckling when you hear it. You know, it's not, a as you say, a droning, this is the story, that's the It's performance on a level higher than just, I'm going to hire somebody to just read a book. These three people have gotten it. Now, Mickey, obviously, my sister, was with me as I was writing it. And uh, I'm not sure if I said this yet, but we had uh, an aunt uh, who was just a hoot. Uh, You know, we laughed at her all the time. She was very dear. She was crazy. She was funny. She was, you know, uh, inspiring. She, you know, complicated person. And so I created a character in the book called Abigail Talbot, who is basically my gossip, you know, that she, she delivers all the lines of all the background information that we can't prove. But as soon as Mickey took, you know, started reading and she's, got, you know, a a voice for each of the characters. When she slipped into Abigail, it was like hearing my Aunt Frances all over again. (laughs) Mm. So it was really exciting for me to see what these actors could do to my words, to my story, to elevate it beyond my lowly talent with theirs. And then on top of that, the talent of Anton uh, at the in the sound engineering uh, section of it, you know, with level of sound 
and uh, with spacing between people who are taking breaths and, and correcting and having them do it to the point where it really was at the height of their performance and having that input. And of course, I directed it. So I knew what, what the sound should be like. I knew what the feel should be for a given scene. I knew what each of the characters, you know, where I had found them, whether or not they were uh, somebody's ancestors, because I could read what was in the newspaper. I could read what was in the court documents, but I also could say, Hey, what did your, how did your uncle talk? How did he walk? What did he look like? You know, uh, what do you remember? And and add all of that information in there. There will be an audiobook launch at Bookish in Fort Smith. Can you tell a little bit about what folks can expect at this event? Yes, we are going to do a panel discussion and we're also going to Zoom it. So if anybody that can't be here, people in different you know, parts of the country who are, you know, familiar with Fort Smith or interested in this story or whatever, will be able to get a Zoom as well. Uh, and that's available on um, Facebook. And we're going to have the artist who designed the cover, which is amazing. His name is Russ Jester, and he is part of the uh, convention center, off, you know, so he's very familiar. And we had a picture of the, uh, the lynching. And while I wanted to imply it on the cover, you know, it's very sensitive and I wanted to, to respect uh, the families all the way around. And the way he solved it was so creative and so thoughtful. So he'll be there to talk about that process. Uh, we'll have, of course, Anton uh, Rasmussen, who was the sound uh, director. And he'll talk about, you know, how he was able to to bring these things to life with his art. Uh, Mickey will be there to talk about, you know, her performance. Eric Wells will be there to talk about his performance and what they were able to bring to it and what they were learned from it. Because, you know, you you always walk in and you learn something and then you you walk away with not only what you put in, but also what you took out. And that will be what they'll be talking about. And Grant Thomas will be there, and he is uh, the director and the manager uh, at Soul Studios who helped set this all up and uh, coordinated it. And he'll talk about, you know, their business and how that is relating to audiobooks in general. Since originally they set it up for music, they didn't not set it up for books, but they uh, they didn't realize, you know, that we would have as many people as there are wanting to have their books turned into uh, audiobooks. Then we'll have Sarah uh, Putnam, who owns Bookish, to talk about, you know, how you can get these audiobooks. You can get them anywhere. You can get them in Amazon's Audible and all of that. But there's something called Libro.fm, which is for independent bookstores. And uh, if you choose to go there, you can select which bookstore you want to benefit. Mm. And of course, we're recommending that Sarah, who is within a block of her, where she, her store is, is within a block of where most things within the book took place. So she's in the heart of it. That was author Joyce Faulkner, whose latest audiobook, Garrison Avenue, launches tomorrow, May 12th, at Bookish in Fort Smith. For more details about attending the event and where to get your copy of the book, you can visit our website, ozarksatlarge.com. 
On tomorrow's show, a conversation with American historian and author, Dr. Elliot West. He talks Saturday as part of the Tippy McMichael Lecture Series at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Plus, I'll take a look at live music happening this weekend. Lee Uribe will bring us our weekly dose of sound perimeter and more. That's on a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large, tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Sleet City, Fayetteville's first art supply store, officially opened its doors late last month. The cozy shop is filled with a vibrant paint selection, a myriad of different stationary options, and even the most aesthetically pleasing seed gardening packets one might ever find. I spoke to owner and muralist Olivia Tremble, who said that she was inspired to open the brick-and-mortar store after finding it difficult to find high-quality supplies locally. I've painted signs and murals in northwest Arkansas for about 10 years now, and the paint that I use and the brushes that I use, you can't really buy them here. They always have required a trip to Little Rock to go to Art Outfitters down there, or Tulsa to go to Ziegler's or Kansas City. So, you know, it's been on my mind that I can't even buy my own work supplies in my own town. And then, you know, um, anytime we do go travel somewhere, whether it's for work or leisure, my family and I, we always visit the local art supply store. And I walk around it like a total ding-dong, just like ooing and eyeing over supplies that I have no idea what you do with them. And I don't use in my own practice, but just the energy of an art supply store is exciting to me because it's full of things that themselves are beautiful but they have so much potential. What is the response from customers, from the community to the shop? Um, It's been incredible. So um, my friends and family, of course, have been supportive and have come in since day one, and I'm always grateful for that. But the real excitement is when someone that I don't know comes in and... Um, I get to talk with them and they'll tell me their first impression of the shop and how they've wanted a local art supply or they like these specific products. And um, I think that it's, it's super interesting and fun to hear about what other artists have going on. So it's just um, having this space makes me feel more connected with our community in a way that I haven't uh, in the past. It's, it's amazing. I mean... What do you hope we'll be talking about in five years when it comes to Sleet City and in the future? The five-year plan, and hopefully this happens much sooner, uh, is that we'll become a full-service art supply store so that when you walk in, regardless of what medium you use, um, you'll find what you need. And we, you know, like right now, we have a lot of gifts and kits and original art and prints. And so those things I'd like to always keep um, because I feel like, you know... I have felt as an artist who doesn't, who hasn't come from an academic background, when I've walked into certain spaces, maybe like I don't fit in or I'm not enough or whatever. And so I feel like having some things that are for anyone who walks in will soften that feeling because I hear so often a person who is beautifully put together, they have an interesting outfit and you can tell like this person has style or they, you know, this is a, a creative person, they'll say, 
well, I love your shop, but I'm not an artist. And they've picked up a few things. And I'm like, that's not true. You probably are. You haven't found your medium. And my hope is that we'll have some things that appeal to everyone so that people feel comfortable coming in. And maybe on their second or third visit, they'll have eyeballed, you know, maybe um, a neat watercolor set or um, a screen printing, you know, kit or something. And they'll think, huh, maybe maybe today's the day I'll pick this up. So I hope that it's a gateway um, for people who are maybe art adjacent to, to consider themselves um, creatives because... Like, we all have that, and I hope that this is a place that people feel really comfortable. As Olivia mentioned, Sleet City is made for everyone, for those who are art-adjacent, as she calls it, for parents and for kids alike. You know, as um, as a mom, I've got lots of kids' stuff here. Um, I've tried to make it easy for someone if they're on the way to a birthday party or they need a kid's gift or their child's interested in, you know, diving into a medium that we have lots of things that are both beautiful and high quality, but also affordable because like, let's be real kids, you know, art, art supplies in themselves can be expensive. So something we've tried to do is, um, have a couple of price points with each thing. You know, we have, um, golden acrylic paints, some nice artist-grade paints, but we also have some more accessible uh, Grumbacher Academy acrylics. We have, you know, I, I try to balance this through everything that we carry. Um, you know, maybe we have Tombow, Tombow dual brush markers. Those are, like, that's an investment, but we also have other markers that are a little more accessible, especially in our kids' section, because... Well, everyone loves markers. And then the thing that's maybe maybe a little squirrely, but I think it's justified, we have a lot of garden items and seeds, and that's just selfishly, I want them here, but, uh, you know, more, more, more accurately, there's an awful lot of overlap between creatives and people who work on their garden and like to grow things, and so um, I was so happy after going through a mega plant and seed starting um, discovery through the pandemic that I could order Hudson Valley seeds to carry in the shop because I've loved um, I've loved them from a nerd standpoint. The germination rate has been really good for me on everything I've grown, but their packaging is so beautiful. I, I, um, that was exactly what I was going <laughs> to comment on. I mean, this is so aesthetically pleasing. I don't know that I've ever <laughs> seen a seed packet that I want to hang up on my wall. Well, there's, they, you know, they, um, I love this company because they hire artists and they pay them a pretty nice wage to design these gorgeous art packs and then um, I, I'm also happy to report that there are quite a few seats in these beautiful, affordable art packs. So this has been a thing that um, has just been silly and exciting to me to be able to carry. I spoke to Sleet City owner and muralist Olivia Tremble. The art supply store is located at 914 North College Avenue. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. It's the Community Spotlight on KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman, always happy to be joined by Karen Wagaman, Vice President of Downtown Development with the Rogers Lowell Area Chamber of Commerce. Hey, Karen, how you been? Doing well. Thank you so much. We're going to be talking about an event coming up this Thursday, May 12th, Barks on the Bricks. Remind us of Art on the Bricks, which uh, this is part of a program that has really seen uh, the full scale of the development of uh, that downtown area. 
Art on the Bricks Art Walk has been around since November of 2017. It takes place the second Thursday of every single month, 4.30 to 7.30 p.m., and it does continue to grow and involve artists from all over northwest Arkansas. And also different cultured artists as well. I know that's been a theme recently. Absolutely. We always look to have a theme that is socially or culturally significant that will interest the community and attract more people to downtown Rogers. Now, May is National Pet Month, so what better time to hold an event like this? Again, it's called Barks on the Bricks this Thursday, uh, 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. What's going to be taking place, Karen? We will have not only artists and nonprofit organizations related to pets, but also a lot of um, people are going to be bringing their dogs. So we're excited. We have more than 70 businesses in downtown Rogers that are dog friendly. And we always love it when people bring their dogs and come out into the community and share that. It's part of their family. The retail stores have often been very dog friendly, as are many of the offices, but also some of the restaurants now have outdoor seating and they are many times dog friendly. So we want to make sure that people know that and we want to invite them to come to downtown Rogers, experience the art scene, experience the retail spaces, and the restaurants wherever possible, and they can bring their dogs. Karen Wagaman, Vice President of Downtown Development with the Rogers Lowell Area Chamber of Commerce. Karen, someone wants to know more of the specifics. What's the best way? Artonthebricks.com. Easy enough. Thanks so much for letting us know what's coming up this Thursday. Thank you. So many events take place during the KUAF listening area each week. To learn about them, you can visit the community calendar at our website, KUAF.com. The Community Spotlight and KUAF, your voice matters. This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sonora. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Matthew Moore, and Charlie Allison. The Undisciplined Podcast is hosted by Karee Benton and produced by Matthew Moore. The Community Spotlight is produced by Pete Hartman. Additional content today came from KUAR Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. for another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Until then, thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your Wednesday.